Welcome to this edition of the Disciples Men podcast with your host Greg Alexander and Alex Ruth. Thank you for joining us as we explore the many challenges of being man of faith in these challenging times. Disciples Men is a ministry of Disciples Home Missions of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in the U.S. and Canada. Let's listen in today's conversation. Welcome to another edition of the Disciples Men's Podcast. This is your Associate Director of Disciples Men with you, uh, Alex Ruth. Glad to be with you today. As always, we have our Director of Disciples Men with us, Greg Alexander. Greg, good to have you with us. Thank you, Alex. Good to be with you as always. Looking forward to our conversation today. I am as well. We have an outstanding guest, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. We have with us uh, Shonda Ja who is uh, an equity and anti-oppression consultant, which hopefully she will explain that a little bit to us uh, throughout the course of our time today. Uh, but you may also know uh, she started and was founder of the Oakland Peace Center um, and still has a role with them um, doing uh, work, good work, uh, great work um, out in California. So uh, Shana, nice to have you with us today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. And Alex, let's not forget her new book. Oh, yes. Room at the Table. And so uh, Shonda has a new book we're really excited about in our reading. And so uh, we want to make sure we give a great plug for that because it's a good piece. She got several things out. Uh, Room at the Table, which we are doing some uh, pro-reconciliation, anti-racism work uh, through our work at DHM. Greg and I are. Um, and I've been using in my personal devotionals for better than a year now. Um, I think the book has been a little bit right around a year, um, liberating love devotionals. Um, and I've really been enjoying that. So thank you for your work there. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I, I still love getting my, my Sunday morning emails. Um, Yay! Has, I'm so that glad. Something that has been great uh, for me, for, uh, something that helps me get a little focused before church. So uh, it's helping at least one person. Um, oh, and I, I love that. Visible, so <laughs> thank you for those things. Um, uh, we'd like to start off by letting our, our guests kind of introduce themselves to our listeners to um, let our uh, listeners know a little bit more of some of the great and important voices uh, in our church these days. And so I'd like to kind of just turn the floor over to you for a little while um, and uh, tell us a little bit about your history. Um, what's brought you to what you do today? What does that look like? Some of those questions. Absolutely. And before I do that, I just want to express deep, deep gratitude for what you all are creating. I was part of a, a panel recently that was talking about, was trying to recruit new leadership into our camping program out here in Northern California, Nevada. And I found myself on a call with a number of people I had known for years. And I was moved almost to tears when I realized, I, and I said to the potential camp counselors and directors, I said, y'all need to understand one of the most beautiful things that goes on in our camping program and in camping programs all over the country is we have all of these men who are offering, you know, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and people think that that means all masculinity is toxic, but real, the reality is there's an alternative version, which is healthy masculinity. And for the kids in our camping program to be exposed to healthy masculinity is just one of the most sacred things that happens on those campgrounds. And I know that that's what you all are building is 
just the rich richness of what it can be to be a man grounded in Christ and in humility and in compassion and even in vulnerability, the fact that vulnerability can be a beautiful trait for men to embody uh, and how transformative that is, especially when we worship a savior who mm -hmm. embodied all of those things. Uh, I just wanted to express deep appreciation for what you all are doing. And I say that as a woman who hasn't always experienced men in their healthiest masculinity. And so I see you doing that work on my behalf as well as uh, in your own work of liberation. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'm a, yeah, you all already know I'm a fan of Disciples Men. So uh, I just wanted to name that up front. So I, my father is from India. You want to talk about somebody who embodied healthy masculinity. My father was one of the most hardworking, humble, gentle men you could possibly meet. My mother is from Scotland. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily describe her as humble or gentle. So they balanced <laughs> each other really well. Um, and they're a beautiful, beautiful couple. So he's, he was from India. She's from Scotland. I was born in England. We came to Akron, Ohio when I was a toddler. Um, and so I grew up in the Midwest. And the thing that uh, really shaped me is both of my parents came from places where people worked hard and that didn't necessarily mean that life ended up going great for them. And mm. we moved to Akron, Ohio, where people worked hard. And when we arrived in the late 70s, early 80s, life was not going great uh, for the hardworking men and women and people across the gender spectrum who worked in the tire and rubber industry. Uh, and so... I think in many ways that shaped me and how I understood my place in the world. I was also really blessed by, and you'll have to forgive me, a really beautiful United Church of Christ church uh, just outside of Akron, Bath United Church of Christ. And the pastor there, who was a former Air Force chaplain, uh, who really had a vision of America that I didn't realize was unusual for where we were. Well, I I did realize it was unusual for where we were, but his vision of America was a very multicultural vision because having served in the armed forces and traveled all over the world, he had a sense of the gifts and graces of people of all cultures. So when my family got sworn in as US citizens, when I was in second grade, his entire Sunday school moment was bringing up the newspaper article from the Akron Beacon Journal with all of the very diverse folks who were becoming US citizens and becoming part of the life of Akron and talking about it as a blessing from God. Mm. Uh, and so that shaped me too. Um, in many ways, I hope that I can be half the pastor that Reverend Chapman was. Uh, and so in many ways that shaped my journey. Long story sh short, too late, but uh, I ended up working in Washington, D.C. for my member of Congress from Akron, Ohio. So I really got to be a part of trying to make a better world for the community that had shaped me. I worked for a religious liberties organization, doing organizing work with them uh, to make sure that religious minorities, people of all religions, got the freedom to express their religious beliefs without persecution. And wow, talk about how relevant that work continues to be today. Um, and then I went to seminary and policy school in Chicago before getting to work for the regional staff out here in Northern California, Nevada, fell in love 
don't tell the congregation I said this, fell in love with the building that was First Christian Church of Oakland, became the pastor. God helped me recognize what a gift it was to pastor the people of the congregation. Uh, that group gave birth to the Oakland Peace Center because of all of us had the lived experience of losing people to violence in the streets uh, and wanted to be a part of creating something different. And that, in addition to the work I've gotten to do with the uh, reconciliation ministry of the Christian church, is what has made me the very non-conventional but very proud disciples minister that I am today. <laughs> wow, what a great journey. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious, after hearing your journey, what would be two or three of the things uh, that you carry with you today that are just kind of the, that grounds you in both faith and life. Absolutely. Um, this is going to sound weird, but my work in labor organizing, uh, you know, worker solidarity is maybe a better way of putting it, realizing that most of the on the ground workers that I work with are also deeply spiritual. And so the conversations that we connect over, yeah, they may be about, you know, a fair minimum wage, they may be about healthcare, uh, but really when we bond, it's over how do we grieve losses? How do we create ritual uh, around the hardships that we're dealing with? How do they tap into spiritual resources to give them strength? And so the deep spirituality that goes along with showing up for the dignity of hardworking people in this country, I think is one of the really grounding things for me. And the other one is the gifts of, and this is something that's why part of why I ended up in the disciples is the gifts of connecting with people across a diversity of faith traditions. I learned so much about how to be a better Christian because of the conversations I have with my Muslim and Hindu and Sikh and mm. Jewish family. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm proud to be disciples is we're not only uh, encouraged, but strongly encouraged to be a part of both ecumenical and interfaith work. And I really do think one of the things that has deepened my Christianity is getting to be in deep conversation with people across faith traditions. I found the, uh, the I celebrate both the ecumenical and interfaith work. I love both and have been a yeah. part of both. I find that the, the great impoverishment around that is in, uh, you may not know that I serve a little church in retirement that's uh, out in the boonies and uh, about an hour from Louisville, Kentucky. And, and in those places, the interfaith work is not relevant to their day-to-day -day mm -hmm. as a rule. And so the ecumenical piece, yes, we're dealing yeah. with that regularly in some really nice ways, but is uh, but you can move into Lexington, Louisville, in one of the cities, you know, and of course uh, the interfaith conversations become vital. And uh, yeah. I don't know how you, I, I haven't yet found a way to engage uh, in a in a really wonderful way the interfaith conversation because you know people are going, oh, that's nice, Greg. <laughs> no, but it seems pretty it. abstract. Yeah, yeah. There's just no concrete way to connect. Well, with I'll it. tell so, you what, think, my mother's. I'm from, so excited about yes. that that you are there. Well, and my mother's from Scotland, so I can tell you that inter that ecumenical conversations can be just as hard as interfaith ones. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that's true. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, 
I have some of that same experience, Greg. I think it's good yeah. to recognize that, you know, we face in our context, we face different challenges. Yes. Um, you know, we're not, yes, there are different faith traditions expressed by folks in um, Springfield, which is about a half hour from where I live in, in minister. Uh, but, but we are firmly planted probably on the buckle of the Bible belt, you know? Um, so the majority of the conversation is, and I'm using this word intentionally centered around a Christian perspective Sure, uh, that everything else is abnormal to that assumed norm. Um, but we're in a world that that assumed norm is becoming much less a reality. Um, and, and I think in large part because of the work that, that all of us are seeking to do um, to, if not counteract, at least address yeah. um, some, some wrongs that have happened throughout history uh, in the name of, of faith yeah. and in the name of Christianity. Yeah, and I think it gets into some of the intergenerational work we end up having to do no matter what our context is. I think that's the one thing that is true across, uh, you know, all of our contexts, rural and suburban and urban, is that there are some folks who are like, church has done so much harm, I don't know why I should show up for it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's important work for us to engage vulnerably and honestly as well. That is a conversation I have probably too frequently with my congregation. And um, as Alex, Alex knows, because I've lament with him that being a church bureaucrat for 27 years <laughs> and then returning to a congregation, I found out that there's a developmental piece of ministry that I don't have. You know, if you if you had gone, if I'd been in a parish context that whole time, I would have developed along, you know, with sort of the, the flow. And as a consultant as one outside the church is you know i knew i knew how to advise the church the whole and lost connection with how you advise advise the people of the church mm -hmm. how you, how you minister and teach that in ways that are relevant to their life and not necessarily yeah. to the institutional life yeah that's been an interesting challenge for me but and so i find myself pretty regularly uh taking issue with the church and, uh, you know, um, of the places where I think we have failed, I think a lot of the, a lot of the social ills that we're dealing with today, the newer ones, you know, that are, well, they're old ones that are rearing themselves in new ways. Um, you know, I think the church has to take some responsibility for the fact that we turned our back on so many of those justice issues just to tend to, you know, our own, our own business as a church, making sure we all feel good and about ourselves and who we are and, and doing nice things and baking cookies and having, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, again, I don't mean to play that down. Those are very nice, kind things to do, but as far as attending to the justice dynamics of ministry, um, I, I think the church dropped the ball. And it is one of the reasons why Alex and I named our, our men's ministry, the Jesus way. Yeah. The Jesus way journey, because we do see Jesus, as you mentioned very kindly at the beginning, as the model yes. of the of the mature masculine, of what it means to be, you know, uh, to live the kind of that kind of life. And um, and I think the church has not done us a favor, you know, in setting up 
setting up that ministry. And so sometimes it's pretty hard plowing. And I, I'm trying to put myself in your place, mm-hmm. Shonda, where, I mean, your, your issues you're dealing with are pretty big ticket items. <laughs> you know, it's not just, a, you know, so-and-so's, uh, you know, son went in the hospital today, so we ought to pray for him. But this is stuff, you know, that, that have larger repercussions yes. and large numbers of people. Where do you find your strength and energy? What feeds your spirit? Well, and it's interesting because I think all of us are always dealing with the big ticket items as well as the deeply personal stuff, right? I think the moments that I treasure from working with low-wage workers in particular is getting invited to baptisms, getting invited to officiate over memorial services. Um, there's there are, There are a couple of folks in my life who are deeply beloved and I remember when one of them lost her son and her family said, oh, we'll have the priest over. Uh, it was a suicide. The, we can't have it in the Catholic church. We'll have the priest over. And she said, nope, priest didn't show up on the picket line. He's not coming to our house. We're having Shonda because she showed up on the picket line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like those things are actually always in competition, right? When we're visiting somebody in, Uh, in the hospital, I remember one of my colleagues saying what he loved about hospital chaplaincy was that all of the things were pure. They weren't adulterated with politics. And I was like, no, because the person you're visiting in the hospital is also worrying about the $300,000 medical bill that they're dealing with. They're not just, it's, that's not stripped away all of a sudden. Uh, And so even when we're dealing with the deeply personal, it's very often connected to these bigger systemic issues. Um, So I think all of us are dealing with them. It's just a case of whether we're allowed to talk about them or not. (laughs) Um, So uh, for me, it's, it is those personal relationships in the midst of the work that give me the energy. And, and I think that we underestimate and we don't talk about them because we've been trained into this kind of like, you know, the people united, um, you know, the chants in the streets, the big we are stuff tends to erase the fact that the work is also deeply personal, deeply relational work when it's done yes. well. And that's what makes it sustainable. So yeah, it's the relationships for me, the same as it is for every member of every church. Um, That's why people show up on a Sunday, even though, frankly, let's be honest, getting a, you know, getting a newspaper and kicking back at a local cafe or having brunch would probably be a more fun way in some ways to spend a Sunday morning. We keep showing up at church anyhow. Uh, It's not just because we're more faithful. It's because of the people. Yeah which is how Jesus designed it, I would say. The, uh, the trust dynamic is um, certainly is one that you can't, you can't pay too much attention to. And uh, yeah. you wouldn't be doing those things for those, per, those people you develop personal relationship if you hadn't earned the trust. Yeah. And um, sometimes- And we earn it by showing up. Yeah, we do, we do. And we also earn it by making sure that we that we don't push our agenda. Mm-hmm. We're, we're there because of who we are, mm-hmm. but we're not there to necessarily convert you to who we are. Right. And uh, if we happen to find new common ground together in our conversation and, you know, in our, and the development of our relationship, praise be to God. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a stumbling block I've run into of late, meaning over the last few years is, 
the relationship has become secondary to the conversion. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you can't if you can't believe the way I believe, then you're not worth my time. Yeah. And um, I don't know how much you run into much of that uh, in in your work. Yeah, I think that's a good question, and it's interesting because there's a real tension there. I think. Um, And so I will say as a person of color, I have kind of a yes and response to that because I think that is absolutely critical. We need to be in relationship. And um, I think people of color do a lot. You know, it's interesting. I listen to some of my white colleagues say, well, I just can't go to Thanksgiving dinner anymore because, you know, Uncle Uncle Bert has this belief that's completely horrific. And I'm like, do you think that people of color all think the same way? Because we've all got our Uncle Bert, you know, Um, and and we show up anyhow, because that's what it means to be family. So on the one hand, I feel like we've got some real expertise on this um, about showing up across diversity. And I will say particularly um, my queer family of color um, has a tendency to be like, there are spaces we're going to go where people are going to ignore who I am in order to be at the table with me. And that's what we do. Um, whereas I think that that's not true necessarily of, uh, of everybody uh, who identifies as queer. Um, and at the same time, I think it was, it was definitely James Baldwin who said, I can disagree with you and still be in relationship with you until the point when our disagreement hinges on you not believing in my full humanity. Um, And so that's the tension I think that we always have to navigate is I'm going to show up with my white family across differences of opinion around uh, alternatives to policing because my light-skinned body is not put at risk by the current way that policing is done. But I don't expect my black friends to show up with people who have a difference of opinion about that um, when the group they're talking to is not directly impacted by it. And so Mm -hmm. I think this is where solidarity becomes really important is in the places where I'm not directly impacted, but I have a sense of the justice issue. Yes, I should remain in conversation with people who we can have rich, meaningful debate discussion. Um, But I don't wanna put somebody who's directly impacted into the position of having to defend their humanity um, because that does damage to our souls in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think it matters is putting someone who has a day-to-day lived experience in conversation with someone for whom this is just an abstraction. I think that's, that's maybe unfair and that's where we have to show up um, in those spaces. Wow. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Shana, would you tell us a little bit, uh, we've, we've skirted around this issue um, and, and you, you've alluded to it several times. Tell us more about um, your work um, with equity and anti-oppression. <laughs> How does that how does that take shape and 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 maybe what are some ways that we can uh, Greg and I and anyone who's listening in our in our context yeah. what are some ways that we might be able to uh, begin to engage that kind of work? So I'm really grateful that the Disciples of Christ kind of formed me in a lot of this work. I was part of the very first anti-racism commission. Uh, in this denomination back in, I want to say 2000, 
2003 was when that formed officially uh, and have been involved in the work with uh, Reconciliation Ministries for that's 18 years now. Um, and it's funny because about 10 years into the work, I started hearing from people, no, like three years into the work, I kept hearing, I started hearing from people, we've been talking about this so much. We're tired of talking about it this way. You've got to stop. It's so redundant. Um, we get it already. And about 10 years into the work was when I started seeing it start to trickle into institutional life. So it required a pushing through that discomfort. We get it already. Stop. It's too much uh, in order to get to a place where it started to be effective. Um, and so I just want to honor and celebrate the fact that I have seen some impact in terms of who is sitting in a lot of positions of decision making and authority. Um, it's not all the way to where it could be because um, the big budgets in our denomination still tend to be attached to uh, white men. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't think, and I don't think that that's a conscious thing, but I do think that it's something we need to be conscious of if we want to see it change. Mm -hmm. um, and we got to be honest that money and power are very deeply connected and to pretend that they're not, I think is dangerous. So um, what I think is really beautiful about anti-oppression work is it's also deeply relational. Um, and in order for it to have a real impact, it also has to be done in ways that recognize systems that are at work, right? We've got, a, if y'all will forgive me, and I know this is a, a slightly controversial one because I work with a lot of truly exceptional human beings who are police officers. My grandfather was actually the um, chief of police for his town in, uh, in Scotland, chief of police of Airdrie, um, of which was, like I said, a small town. But um, when, when we, in my city of Oakland, we have one of the most diverse police forces in the country. And we've been under federal receivership meaning we can't be trusted to run our own police department. Uh, the federal government has to oversee us uh, for, I want to say 15 years. Um, because despite the fact that we have an incredibly diverse police force, we were shaped by a police force that was intentionally imported to Oakland in the 1940s um, from the Jim Crow South. And so the way that that police force was built out was shaped on a Jim Crow culture that no matter how many good people we bring into the institution, the institutional structure hasn't been completely overhauled uh, in order to be an anti-racist, anti-oppressive structure. So no matter how good-willed we are, no matter how diverse uh, the folks who are in our police force are, we continue to deal with systemic racism over and over. And members of the police force keep scratching their head about it. Um, and the reality is it's because we don't know the history. We don't see how that's embedded into our institutional structures. And so we keep repeating harm that we don't want to repeat. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in order to have good relationships, we have to do the systemic work. Otherwise, we're just play acting at relationship. So that was maybe a little bit wonky. Uh, but what I do want to say is 
there are four ways in which we can engage in anti-oppression work. We can deal with the internal work to be honest about the ways in which the culture around us has trained us into personal biases. We can work on being aware of how we engage each other with more cultural sensitivity. That's the interpersonal work, interpersonal work. And then we have to pay attention to the ways the rules, the bylaws, the culture of an organization actually props up privilege for some groups over others. That's the hardest work, but it's actually some of the most important work. Um, and finally, we have to pay attention to how those inner in institutions work with each other to perpetuate and prop up um, structural oppression uh, that is almost be, and we can't start there, but if we start at the institutional level, then we have models where we can collaborate together across anti-oppressive institutions to build out different structures. Um, that's a really wonky answer to that question. <laughs> what can you well, do I at think... home? You can take over, you can, you can stand up against institutional racism. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. And, uh, and, uh, uh, I have had the privilege of, you know, being a part of some of that journey um, yeah. over the years. I started in regional work in 1992, and um, got to, and you know, got to participate and watch um, both the challenge of overcoming the institutional racism within disciples, and as a middle judicatory person, how we dealt with that ourselves, and. Uh, and I'm so excited to say that the work that we did has led to a call of a new regional minister in Kentucky who is an African-American dear friend of mine, uh, pastor. And, um, and I, I just think that it has worked. Our system, yeah. our, our intentionality is working. Um, I've been very vocal as I've watched the leadership of our church change. You know, being an old white guy who got to sit in those places I, I can't celebrate enough or give God enough thanks for how we are seeing that, you know, the leadership of our church change so dramatically. And it's, as I've shared with people, it's not just because we're, you know, we're getting some color diversity. I'm, you know, while that's important, what's happening is, is that we're now getting glimpses of God we could never see before. We never allowed ourselves to see as we see God through these other experiences, these other voices, these other hearts and minds. You know, now we're the, the richness of the diversity of who we are is now becoming available to us, or we're allowing it to become available. Or that doesn't sound right, but but anyway, for it's it's availing itself to us in new ways which were not there, or we didn't recognize or accept as being there in times past. And I am so so excited to see how the you know the, the giftedness and the beauty of so many of the new church leaders who are emerging young. They're not all older. You know, we have some young dynamic people that we are embracing. And, um, you know, I know there are people in the church who are grumbling about how their church is changing. And to them, I would just say, you know, if you take that attitude, then you're, you're losing out on all that, what God is wanting to give us as a, as yeah. a community of faith. And there is so much joy in it, right? Oh my gosh. It's extraordinary. The worship, you go, the joy and the spirit of worship. Wow. I don't know how to duplicate. I can't duplicate that in my setting. It's not possible. Well, I wish this I could is the thing, Greg, is you, you also have, you and your community also have gifts to contribute to that as part of it, right? 
We absolutely do. Yeah. And uh, I remind them, them of that. And I, but you know, it's, it is kind of an in-between time for us. It feels like, you yeah. know, in, um, you know, this, uh, this moment and, uh, uh, you know, and I know not everybody can embrace it until they have a chance to develop the relationships that you shared, yes. uh, Sean, yeah. and, and have some of those experiences, but I, oh gosh, I do just so celebrate how I yeah. see our church emerging and flowering into something so beautiful that's potentially been there for since our beginning that's right and uh, as, as it you was point part out of our beginning book, exactly yeah. and uh, but I, I want to do a quote uh, and uh, the quote from the book because it does tie into who we are as disciple men and one of the things that Alex and I built our work together on is the belief that we are all products of our past and and while we are products of our past the key to faith is not allowing the past to determine who we will be going forward. And you wrote, we study history because it tells us something about who we are now and what we can be. And that's probably a more eloquent way of saying what we've been saying <laughs> all along. And you say, we cannot change the past, but we can learn about our present by knowing our past better. And I don't want us to, I don't want us to, to lose that, I think, very foundational piece of your book. Because uh, I think it's so true, and it's certainly a great connection point for for disciples, men. Because we are right there with you in that belief. Yeah, yeah, and I really appreciate you saying that because it's actually in the anti-oppression consulting work I do now. Um, that's one of the pillars of of my work is um, to do anti-oppression work uh, well. It needs to be deeply relational. It needs to be grounded in an understanding of our history so that we can uh, have a productive moving forward. And it needs to be accountable to communities of color. Um, those are the only ways in which this work can be successful. So it, it's nice to be reminded that this thing that I wrote, what was it, 13 years ago, uh, st <laughs> still, still ends up being germane in that particular way. Uh, it really does, our, our, our history, and there are both painful and glorious things for us to tap into. There's actually wisdom that we don't always get told about. Um, the stories of resistance, the stories of resilience, the stories of overcoming, the stories of collaborating are not always stories we get taught because the purpose of history isn't necessarily to create critical thinkers, it's to create good citizens by which I mean obedient citizens. And I think as a result, we don't always hear the stories of where people pushed against things and it worked, where people came together and it worked. Um, and those are some of the stories from our history that we also can benefit from. Y'all will have to forgive me if I sound like I'm doing a lot of rosy picture stuff. <laughs> right now, a big part of my work is there is joy in racial justice, and we keep underselling that part. And I yes. think so many folks get uh, trapped in a cycle of shame and blame and therefore pull out of that work um, because all it does is create trauma or, uh, or resistance or um, defensiveness. But if we get to do the whole story, yeah, there's going to be painful stuff we have to wrestle with. And a lot of grieving and spiritual rituals of um, release and reparations that are involved in that. 
but there's also really beautiful joy-filled inspiring stuff that has been withheld from us for too long that we get to reclaim yeah yeah absolutely it's so important and uh and it does add it does add fuel to our own spirits to want to do more yes it it is inspirational for us to roll up our sleeves and do the work that we are all called to do absolutely i am i am curious did i cut you off alex i'm sorry if you have no you're good no you're good i am i do always we always want to ask our our uh, guests um how are there specific ways that you could see disciple men being supportive of the work that you do of your own ministry yeah um that's beautiful and i'm i'm really excited about um what you all are doing to make sure there's a balance of what has been uh, a gift and contribution of Disciples Men for many years. Um, I feel like Disciples Men has always been a space of committed, humble service. uh, And I see how you all continue that long legacy and I appreciate it. Um, And I love that you're being so intentional about uh, building relationships across Uh, race and culture. Uh, I really loved your interview with Yvonne. Uh, It was so great to hear uh, the NAPAD minister featured on on this podcast, uh, who obviously uh, Chung Sun and I have done a lot of work together, and I was really grateful for that. So the ways in which you're being so intentional about saying disciples men as a group is actually a multicultural uh, anti-oppressive group is Mm -hmm. really beautiful. And so I think continuing to be on that journey, you know, one of the things, and I've actually got a course that's coming up uh, in a month or so on this subject. One of the things I'm spending a lot of time thinking about these days is um, how we take care of our own souls to make sure we don't burn out in the work. I suspect you all have noticed, have, have heard that the rates of burnout had already gotten to epic proportions back in 2019, and they have gone up considerably since then, especially among activists and caretakers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been true in the medical field. Uh, it's also true in Um, in any form of ministry and in our denomination that believes in the priesthood of all believers, all of our members are ministers. Um, And so the burnout that goes along with that is very real. Uh, So I've been thinking a lot about what spiritual self-care looks like as a practice, partly for our own energy, partly so we don't do harm to each other. uh, Because when we're burned out, that leaks out in Uh, in dangerous ways. And I will say the people with the most power tend Mm -hmm. to let it leak out in the most harmful ways. It's why domestic violence rates um, show up the ways that they do. Uh, It's the, it's the reason that, um, that we see so much of the harm we see in the community. So intentional work around self-care actually helps people besides the person being cared for. And since we've been talking about the connection between uh, the personal and the systemic, I also think that deep dives into how we create a community care culture is really important. And because disciples men still have a great deal of power within the life of the church, um, 
if our churches were built around taking care of the mental health of pastors and of congregants, what a radical countercultural shift that would be. I mean, we're having this conversation just after Terry Osaka said, you know what, I'm, I'm dealing with mental health issues and I'm going to step back. And wow, the way the tennis uh, community came after her um, was horrific uh, because yeah. a black woman doesn't have the right to take care of her mental health uh, in the same way. And they wouldn't have come after her if she had sprained her wrist, right? Um, what could what could disciples men do to say you know what being a strong man means helping my organization my church my region uh my ministry be oriented around the emotional and mental and spiritual health of the servant leaders as well as every member of that community wow what a shift that could be that's a great challenge to us. The one that's, uh, that we certainly need to embrace. We hope it's a part, you know, it's nested in what yeah. we do. Yeah. We hope it's there. It's certainly, it's our intent, but the, but that's yeah. really a much more intentional challenge. And I think we had identified Shonda. So thank you for, oh, I love that. For us. That's great. That, that we, is a, we'll do our best with that. <laughs> yeah. That is a great challenge. And I, especially I keyed in on, um, the issue of, of mental health because we had to, had to delay this recording by one week because I was attending right. some uh, members of my congregation who had a young man, uh, 31 years old in, in their family, take his own life um, almost two weeks ago. And I, I, I found myself in those times asking the same questions that we all ask the yeah. why, you know, why didn't we see, what could yeah. we have done, asking all the, and they're good questions, they may not be helpful questions, or that we may not be able to find the answers, right. um, but I think one thing that came out of that was a need to be more open about mental health and spiritual health as parts of our overall integrated well-being yeah. as people. Um, as children of God. Um, uh, and so uh, I was able to share in some of those about some of my own mental health issues and struggles and those within my family that not everybody knows about. Yeah. But why don't they know about, you know, why don't I just, why haven't I not felt willing to, to share that before? Um, and there are myriad of reasons for those yeah. things right but but to begin to be able to have a, an open honest vulnerable conversation like we've talked about um is vital for us moving forward in in issues of of mental health and all spiritual well-being well and i think it's i really appreciate you saying it that way alex because it's only in this past few months maybe this this year that i've started talking about the fact that i'm wrestling with some of those issues around depression and a large part of it was I didn't want my congregation to feel like they couldn't trust me. And there was something in me that believed or knew, I'm not sure which, that if I said I'm dealing with depression, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't think they could trust me as a pastor. And then when I was the executive director of a fledgling nonprofit, I didn't want potential donors to think that I was 
that I was too high a risk and therefore the organization was. That's an awful lot of pressure to put on ourselves. And it means we can't show up fully for the folks um, that we're called to serve. So this is one of those places where definitely, I mean, definitely women of color get punished for seeking out to, for protecting uh, their, our mental health. And I think all of us are scared to talk about it because of the potential repercussions. And this is a place where we could use some folks with a little bit more power, even if folks never like to admit that they have power, um, to, to take the lead, to give the rest of us a little bit of cover so that we can all start talking about it in healthier ways. Yeah. We, uh, I, go ahead, okay. No. <laughs> I was thinking that that's a, that's a, I, I like that image of, of giving cover. That's, that's not a phrase that I would have necessarily chosen before, right. but it is very, it's, it, it's very uh, in line with what I, I, I think both Greg and I um, try to do in, in this ministry uh, with the disciples, men, and uh, just in our general lives is to, to employ the power and privilege that we do have in a way that helps all people realize a more holistic and more integrated, uh, fulfilling yeah. life. Um, you know, so we recognize that th- this is two white guys leading a ministry. <laughs> now it's ministry to guys. So, but still two white guys leading a ministry to guys. Um, and so that's why we've been so intentional about including other voices um, and, you know, are doing the work towards creating curriculum with a broadly diverse um, authorship yeah. from the ground up. You know, it's not something that we want to get a stamp on or tell somebody else's story, but it's important to include all of these voices from the very beginning of things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I do want to add just as, because this is, you were talking about how you find joy, where you're finding joy, Shonda. And, and, um, you know, I've been doing men's work for about 30 years now in some capacity. And, um, and I can tell you that when you give men permission, when, you know, again, the, when you give them permission to set aside the kind of the macho stereotype of which my generation grew up with, I, yeah. I think that's still very much present in many ways, um, is that you find that the vulnerability comes pouring out. Yes. And, um, and in those safe spaces, I, I have been privileged to set into some ex- in extraordinary conversations, mm-hmm. uh, hearing things um, from, you know, uh, foxhole uh, experience encounters with God, yep. you know, to, um, to um, people, you know, talking about the shame they feel as, uh, you know, in the way they parent or, you know, how they, yeah. you know, just it comes from all different places. Yeah. And, and, you know, the key ingredient is when you have guys together is that no one feels like they have permission to be real, that they have to keep the, keep yep. the facade going. And, yeah. you know, Alex and I've done a whole thing on, uh, you know, how competition causes us to, you know, uh, not share because we don't want to give away our competitive edge with the people around us. Right. And that's one of the great spiritual right. barriers that men experience. I'm sure that's true to some degree for women. And, um, but when, when, when uh, in a safe space and that trust is given, 
guys will become real. They will open up and share. And that's what's kept me going. And that's why we continue to try to create these small group experiences for men to have that. And also to provide them with resources that help them move beyond that experience into seeing how that fits in a larger context. Yes. uh, So, yeah, we, we have, we have joy that we get to share that not everybody gets to see. And, And I, you know, to all the people who are listening, get in a small group of guys you trust and watch what, watch what God can do. Yeah. I mean, you know, just watch what God can do. It'll blow your mind and, uh, and it'll make your life much better and filled with joy. So I just needed to share that. That's uh, you, you were talking that. about that, that. Yeah. It's, it's there. It's just not there enough. <laughs> More of it, please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, Shonda, we can't thank you enough for your time today. Um, as we were talking before we started broadcasting, uh, um, you know, you and I have not had the privilege of meeting face to face. This is my first time, and uh, I have followed you from afar, uh, and uh, uh, you know, have uh, studied and been just so grateful for the impact that you have on our church. Oh, thanks. And you are one of those. One of the, I would say, fresh, dynamic voices that we need to hear more often. And, and yeah. uh, thank you for all you do for all of us. Oh, thanks to both of you. I'm such a fan, as you all know. <laughs> it has been great uh, chatting with you uh, today. Uh, Shonda, uh, is there uh, something I always like to try to do for those who I know are um, uh, either published or have other ancillary things what's the best way for somebody who's who's listening who may not know of your work to get in engaged with some of um some of what you've written website something like that that would be helpful yeah absolutely so i just updated my uh website yesterday so it's shondajaw.com and actually if you go to the speaker section i've collected all of the sermons and panels I was a part of for AAPI Heritage Month, uh, all in one place. So that's a great place to start. Great. And I will provide a link down below this uh, video in the in the comment section for that as well. Uh, Shonda, thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, You've been a blessing to me in many ways in my ministry. Um, And and thank you for your generosity in helping out, uh, helping out a, a I can't call myself young anymore, but in some ways, uh, a young or aspiring author um, and giving me some really great pointers. I do appreciate it. Oh, I'm so a lot. glad. Yes, and, I was uh, thrilled to do it. And, and definitely appreciate your time today. Uh, so good to be with y'all. Thank you, Shonda. God bless you. Likewise. Thank you and God bless for everyone listening. We hope to catch you again soon on another edition of the Disciples Men podcast. Our special thanks to our good friend, the Reverend Dr. Dean Phelps, for providing the special music of this podcast. You can discover more of Dean's music at deanphelpsmusic.com. And you can learn more about the ministry of Disciples Men on Facebook and through discipleshomemissions.org.